Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. Hey everyone, this is Alex Finch. We're here on Always On EM, and I'm here with Frank Bellamconda and Jessica Shane. Dr. Shane, we're so excited to have you here with us today and to hear all about your incredible accomplishments in the world of simulation. If we could just start out by hearing a little bit about your life, where you're from, and what brought you to Mayo and how you found yourself on this path. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I am from Southern California originally, born and raised, did medical school there as well. My husband and I got married right before medical school, and we looked at um, residency as an opportunity to go somewhere else, experience something new, especially since we knew that it was a time-limited thing and there would be an end date, and we could always come back at that point if we wanted to do that. So I applied very broadly, interviewed very broadly, and I wouldn't say stumbled upon Mayo Clinic, but I don't think I would have included Minnesota in my plan if we weren't trying to be open to new opportunities. I actually almost canceled my interview because it was in the middle of January. (laughs) Oh man, I'm so glad you didn't do that. (laughs) When I landed at the Rochester (laughs) airport, the taxi driver that picked me up said that he had called in to work the day before because his engine block was frozen and he couldn't start (laughs) his car. And I almost told him, just turn around right now. This is futile. I'm never moving here. (laughs) <laughs> and yet I matched, I came and I'm still here 10 years later. <laughs> and we're never letting you go back. <laughs> it grows on you. I like Minnesota actually. And having not had white winters as a kid, it's still kind of fun. So that's how I came to be at Mayo Clinic. When I was doing residency and thinking about where I wanted to go after that, what I wanted to do with my career. The pieces that I liked the most were education and the experiences that I enjoyed the most was um, really through our simulation component of our education. I'm a hands-on learner. I do it, learn better and and, um, apply that better if I've seen it once and done it once. I know the see one, do one, teach one is sort of the old adage, but that approach actually does work better for me. So I felt like I really got a lot out of simulation and I wanted to include that in my career going forward and my educational focus. And so that's really kind of what drove me to do a fellowship in simulation. And again, we sort of took that opportunity to look around, see what other experiences we could have. So I applied broadly again for simulation fellowships and took a position at Brown in Rhode Island. And so we moved even further across the country for a year and had a great experience there and then brought that back to Mayo where I am now. What is a day like being a simulation fellow? Was it everything you expected? Yeah, it it depends on the day. And I think to some degree, it depends on how the fellowship is designed. So simulation fellowships are not yet accredited through the ACGME, which means each program may have them set up a little bit differently and their expectations might be a little bit different of their fellows. But in general, I think it's fairly similar to most fellowship programs. And that is Half of my time or or 0.5 of my FTE, if you want to call it that, was spent working as an attending uh, in the emergency department. And then the other half of my time was spent doing fellowship duties. And so much of that was learning everything there is to know about medical simulation from how to troubleshoot technical issues with the mannequin, how to design a case, how to program that into the mannequin, how to 
run the case from the from the booth, if you want to call it that, how to troubleshoot as cases unfolded, and then how to integrate that education through the debriefing process with the participants. I have no background in this. When you were a resident, I don't know if you remember, you and I did some ultrasound simulations for needle guidance things. Comparing that to where you are now is such an incredible growth that happened in that fellowship year. When you think about that, do you have a particular fondness for one type of simulation now, like in situ versus others? And and how did that come to be? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say that when I first went into fellowship, I expected to come out of fellowship with the goal of really focusing my efforts on resident education, similar to the experience that I had as a resident. But there's so much more that you can do with simulation and so much more that I was exposed to during the fellowship that I actually changed that entire plan. And the pieces that I enjoyed the most as a fellow were the inside to simulation pieces and the pieces that were focused more on community practitioners and clinicians and faculty. And I really feel that that fits well at Mayo and with my community medicine piece because the residency education component here is already so strong and so well established that having another instructor is nice, but there, I felt like there wasn't as much that I could really add to that. But the faculty and particularly our community medicine clinicians don't have a whole lot of opportunity or didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to get involved or continue their education through simulation. And so I felt that was a good place that I could take this new passion that I discovered and apply it to our group and really bring something additive to our our practice. I think that's really incredible. And, And to be honest, before I saw you develop this area, I really hadn't heard of anyone doing the fellowship and primarily dedicating themselves to the community development. Is this a well established track or is this something that you've been finding your way down for the first time? I think it's a little bit of both. When I was a fellow, we had a mock code program where we would go into the different hospitals in that uh, hospital system and just run mock codes on the floor. They were unannounced. We pulled one of the nurses in and said, here's your patient, assess them. And then once they decided that that patient wasn't doing well, called a code and the team came in and So that was sort of my first experience with in-situ simulation. Some of those hospitals that are in that system were community hospitals. And so I also got kind of a feel for how how that played out. They did have residents rotating through and they had residents that would respond on the code team. So it was a little bit of a mixed um, participant group. And then we also had the opportunity to take some of these mock code type programs out to some of the community clinic partners. And so one of my favorite ones We went and did a couple of mock codes at a cardiology clinic. And the setup was they had a patient on the treadmill for their stress test and then they go down. What are you going to do? It wasn't really focused on how you manage a code so much as it was focused on, can you gather your team? Do you know who's doing what? Do you know what your resources are? If you call for help, does the alarm actually go off? It was very much systems focused, which is another new focus or a a new way of using simulation that I hadn't been exposed to or thought of really previously in terms of quality improvement and process improvement. And that's another piece that I really like bringing out to the community because the opportunities there are huge and they're, they're very meaningful when you do find something that you can fix. So it was really interesting to, to watch this cardiology team realize that, oh, well, I, you know, I pulled the emergency cord in the room, but it's so old and it's a little piece of rope and we've never used it. It just pulled right off the wall and the alarm never went off. That's a problem. Oh my we should gosh. probably fix that. 
And then, you know, we, we called EMS who knew that we were doing this. And so they, they came, but then they couldn't get in through the back door and nobody knew that they were supposed to be there or the alarm went off, but the physician who's in their office in the back of the clinic didn't hear it and didn't come for the first two minutes of the code and, and things like that. So how do you set this up so that your response when this happens is really ready for this? So it was very interesting. It was very interesting. They coded their patient. We had one patient that went down in the waiting room. So they coded this patient in the middle of the waiting room. And it was interesting to factor in crowd control to some degree with this and then watch them work together as a team. They did fabulously working together as a team. It was a lot of the systems pieces that we helped them with. A lot of that is very applicable to the community medicine practice. And as I say, this sort of identifying what we call latent safety threats and addressing them is is huge and can be very meaningful for your quality of care going forward. I think back to those ACLS videos where they say, you know, step one, call for help. And I can just see somebody pulling that rope and being like, I don't, do I pass go? What what happens? <laughs> so that's a, a incredible area to develop new simulations. We've used this term in situ a couple of times for for our learners who might not have participated or know as much about that. How does that differ from the simulation we experience in the Sim Center? Right. So I think most people automatically envision center-based simulation when they think about simulation. And that might be in a multi-room, super fancy simulation center, or it might be just in one room in a conference room somewhere, but it's it's typically off-site. And it's set up to reflect the clinical care area, but it's not within that clinical care area. Inside to simulation takes simulation out to the, the clinical site. So when we run our site, our simulations, we're actually physically in the emergency department in a care room where a patient would receive care. And the goal is to allow the participants to go through these cases and troubleshoot these issues in the clinical environment where they naturally work using their own equipment with their own team so that it's more realistic and more readily applicable to their daily practice. Because what happens often in the sim center is it doesn't go perfectly. Um, It never goes perfectly, but if something comes up or there's some issue or there's some piece of equipment that's different than what they would typically use, or they don't have that piece of equipment where they are, So in the debrief, it's a lot of, okay, so this went really well today, but how do I do this where I work? Today, I had a surgeon that came in and helped me. I don't have a surgeon where I work, so how would I do that differently? Doing it in situ eliminates all of those what-ifs because we're only working with what you have. And so it makes all of those lessons learned applicable immediately to their practice. And it also allows us to address all of their questions specifically within the availability of, specifically within the resources that they do have available to them in terms of how they would address these things. You hit on many of the strengths of Insight2. I imagine there's some trade-offs. Can you speak to that? Yeah, Insight2 is, I would say, complicated and in a completely separate set of ways than a center-based simulation is complicated. So it's great that it's on-site. It's great that participants who might need to travel to your simulation center, if their normal site or or where they live is far away, like in our system, we have folks that are more than an hour away from our simulation center. So coming to the sim center is not necessarily easy. But since you're in the clinical environment, you have to understand that you can be disrupting patient care in order to hold the simulation. So you have to think about what room you're using, what day of the week, what time of day, what is the volume in the emergency department or clinical setting look like? What is your staffing? So 
You don't want to pull people away from active patient care necessarily to run your simulation, especially if your simulation is going to be a longer one. So do you have enough participants to come and do your simulation to make it meaningful without pulling people away from patient care? If you are going to pull people away from patient care, are you prepared for them to drop everything and run if they need to take care of a patient? If you need to abandon ship in the middle of the simulation because something happens and they need that care room, can you get out of there fast enough? Do you have a backup plan in terms of where you might do that simulation if you don't have access to the emergency department? Is there somewhere else in the hospital that you could do it? And then we think about things like what are the travel constraints? How far away is the emergency department that we're visiting? What's the weather like? Can we get there reasonably? We don't, we've, we've learned the hard way that we don't do these in the middle of the winter anymore <laughs> if we're going far distances. And so a lot of it comes down to planning, 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 and making sure that you have enough participants and that you're not disrupting patient care and that we are always prepared to reschedule if necessary. We have a list of what we call no-go criteria that we review the day before. We contact the site the day before and make sure they haven't had some major staffing issue that requires all of our participants now to be filling in those gaps and, and things like that. So it does take a lot of coordinating. That's really I clever. I didn't, I didn't realize you have no-go criterion as well. It makes total mm -hmm. sense. Absolutely. I'm sitting here listening to the incredible expertise that you're, you're dropping on us all. And I'm thinking, and especially Alex has some background here too, at like personal interest, and I have none. And so I'm imagining how you must feel if I ever run a simulation and you're part of it and it's just not going well. Have, have you been a part of something like that? And how does it feel to be the trainee in a poorly run simulation now? <laughs> well, being a participant is always different than being an instructor. And I think even when you understand the nuances of how the simulation game, if you want to call it that, is played and how sims are run and how they're set up, it's not any more comfortable to be on the participant side. There's still this level of anxiety that, uh, that we all have, which ultimately I think is good. I think that's one of the reasons why we learn so well through this modality, because we really do feel like there's... Um, you know, we're vested in it when we get started. But I will say that where I used to get frustrated with something that clearly wasn't supposed to go that way, I don't anymore. I just continue to play along because I understand that it is difficult to set things up and, and mannequins don't always work the way they're supposed to. And um, actors don't always respond the way they're supposed to. Some of it is ultimately ad-libbed and we just got to run with it. Well, thank you for taking it easy on me for sure. <laughs> Sometimes I can't tell and I'll ask at the end, were you testing me there or was that, <laughs> was that a mistake? You talked a little bit about what it feels like to be a participant, but I know I personally, my blood pressure goes up, my heart rate goes up when the mannequin starts to crash and it always crashes. Things just always are, are getting, maybe that's just my simulation experience, but my patients always get worse in the simulator. And I it think comes she was talking to, about your simulation. <laughs> exactly. Like, is that supposed to <laughs> when I think about the experience of simulation, a lot of it comes down to the suspension of disbelief. When I'm in there, I feel like it's real, even though it's a mannequin. And when I hear you talk about the in situ simulations, I think a misconception that I've had for years is that the suspension of disbelief is coming from the mannequin. It's how high fidelity the mannequin is. And that in many ways ha has represented for me a long time what simulation is. It's 
uh, the better mannequin is the better experience. Is that true in your experience? And kind of what materials do you use for your insight to simulations? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first, I'll talk a little bit about realism and how that plays into the level of engagement and then the learning experience. Realism has to do with what the learner's perception of how real the activity is. And realism is one of the components that is necessary to get learner engaged. And the more engaged a learner is with the activity, the more real they perceive it to be, then the more effective that learning experience will be. But realism is not dependent on a one particular piece. It's not dependent on the fidelity of the mannequin or the environment. It can be both. And it can be also influenced by, are these the team members that I would normally work with or are these actors? Is this one of my usual nurses or is this a, an actor from the simulation center that's playing the part of my nurse? And I, I don't already have an established relationship with this person. So in situ simulation really leverages the environment as the component of reality that we're going for. Having a high fidelity mannequin is helpful because it adds to that realism experience, but it's not required. And it's not without its own issues, right? So a high fidelity mannequin is expensive and anything that has more moving parts, pieces and electronics has more ways that it can um, have issues that, that would require troubleshooting. So it also might require that you have a technician to operate it that comes with you, which adds to your personnel, which makes your team bigger, which makes traveling harder. So it really kind of depends on what your level of resources are and what you can provide. Certainly in a perfect world, we would have all of the high fidelity mannequins and all of the toys and all of the staff. Um, but I think for a lot of places, that's just not realistic. So the mannequin itself does not need to be high fidelity. It needs to do the minimum that you need it to do in order to move the case forward. And you can use your environment and your team members to augment or improve that realism piece that you might be lacking a little bit with your mannequin. What I'm hearing is that there's a lot of flexibility and variety in the way simulation can be executed and be used. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine how a leader in a department could support a simulation subspecialist like yourself to get to help you have the most joy in what you do and be the most effective. So what do you need from your leadership team if it's not a high fidelity mannequin necessarily to be most effective? The biggest things beyond equipment, whether that's low fidelity equipment or high fidelity equipment that we need uh, is time, really. The amount of planning that goes into developing curriculum to customizing that curriculum to fit the site where we're planning on running the case, the amount of time that it takes to coordinate getting everything scheduled and set up, and then to physically go there and do the simulations, run the simulations, takes a lot of time. Um, and so the biggest resource for me, at least, is protected time to be able to do these things. Some of that can be supplemented by some of the wonderful staff that I work with at the simulation center, but not, not all of it. I do have to be there to do some of these things. We're also exploring how to leverage technology, especially now that COVID has illustrated to us how useful and how um, broadly applied some of these tele uh, devices can be used. How can we leverage that from a simulation perspective? Telesimulation is something that did exist prior to COVID, but I don't think was widely 
used or at least as widely used, and it's been very much explored during this time. And so one option is if I can't be there physically to run the case and do the debrief, can I remote in and lead that conversation? If our technician cannot be there physically to run the mannequin, can we run the mannequin remotely and leave the technician at the simulation center? So we're starting to explore a lot of that in more detail. But personally, I think you there's there's a lot of education that happens in that debrief discussion, and it's very hard to have that discussion meaningfully when your participants are separate. So I prefer still to physically go there, but I think the more flexibility that we have, the more frequently we'd be able to to run some of these. And so we're we're looking into ways that we can apply some of this um, telemedicine resources. If you had to give advice to somebody graduating from a simulation fellowship who is not going directly to a practice where there is a simulation director position available, what would you share with them about how to develop that area within a community practice? That's a good question too. I'm fortunate to practice someplace that had some simulation already and understood the value of simulation and has been very supportive. If you're going someplace where there really isn't any of that, then the biggest resources are time and money. Time for you to do what you need to do and money to get the equipment to do what you need to do. There's also the piece that's included in that, but from a different perspective of time and money, and that is getting the participant. You need They need to have time and they need to have some value associated with the simulation in order to be motivated to come and participate. Establishing that takes some time and some effort as well. I think the the biggest bang for your buck when you're trying to establish a program in a community setting is approaching it from the practice standardization and quality improvement perspective, because those produce tangible, tangible results, tangible metrics that can be tracked, that can be fed back into the practice to improve the practice. And leadership can see that immediate improvement and can buy into that. And whenever you do simulation, education is part of it. So if your purpose is practice standardization or your purpose is quality improvement, both of which are important and both of which are pieces that I love in doing this, you will get the education piece in there as part of running the case if that's your ultimate goal. So there are ways to make simulation attractive to your leadership, ways to show that it is an important tool and that it's a worthwhile investment to leadership apart from just education. And while education is obviously an important thing, it's a harder sell sometimes to the leadership to say, I mean, I really just want to set up a program where we can continue to educate our staff and faculty. This is how much it's going to cost. And this is how much time I need. They're probably going to look at you and say, is there a less expensive way to do this or a way that doesn't require so much of your shifts to be covered? So there's, there's got to be uh, an added bonus or some other incentive, I think, to bring leadership on board. The other piece is start small. Once you have them hooked, it's a lot easier to say, hey, we can expand this program if I just had a little bit more time or if I just had a little bit more money. Then if you walk in with, here's the platinum package, they're going to look at you and say, that sounds great. Find somebody else to pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> start with the bronze and work your way up. To that end, you know, I was struck when we were, when we met in the early part of the pandemic and we were changing the practice at such a rapid pace, you had some amazing ideas. And one in particular was this really cool competition idea. Can you share that with the audience? It was brilliant. We never executed it for other reasons, but 
it just highlights your value, I think. If I remember correctly, the question, the concern that came up was that the donning and doffing of PPE was not necessarily where it needed to be in terms of our staff's understanding of how it needed to be done and the quality of donning and doffing to eliminate exposures. Exactly. And this was this was early on when we didn't right. necessarily know what we know now about the likelihood of exposure from some of these things. And I think it, it was also in a setting where people who didn't regularly don and doff that level of PPE were expected to start doing it all of the time and correctly right away. And, and quickly. So the question, question became, how can we train these folks to do this and get them enough practice doing it without burning through all of our PPE at the same time because it's limited and you know, we, we don't want people to view this as another sort of administrative requirement. They're forcing me to do this. So how, how do we set this up? And the idea that I came up with was PPE wars or PPE competition, I think is what we called it. Exactly. Um, and it, it was essentially a plan to be having folks come in two or three at a time and have a little race where they don their PPE, go into the room, are exposed to mock COVID, which would have been glow germ or some other sort of uh, UV light particle, and then come out of the room, doff their PPE. And then the folks that are trained to watch to make sure that you're doing it appropriately would stop you if it was incorrect and you'd have to start over. First person perfectly donned in, exposed, out, and doffed without any exposure on themselves would win that race. And then everybody's times would be logged so that folks who participated on different days could still see where they stand um, in the department as a whole. And we, I think, came up with a couple prizes that our, our top participants would win. So it was kind of, it kind of turned something that would have been a, a nuisance Wonders. really into yeah. something that would have been a lot of fun. And I, I was kind of looking forward to it. I'm, I'm bummed that it didn't work out. <laughs> me too. Me too. But it sticks with me when you brought that up in a discussion that I, I was feeling a lot of pressure and it was, it wasn't fun, but it was important. And then you brought that up and it suddenly was fun and exciting. And yeah, I, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. We did um, quite a bit. So when I was a fellow is when Ebola was coming back around. And so we did a lot with simulation in Ebola and a lot of it had to do with donning and doffing. And so I had some experience with using glow germ, which is essentially a, either a, a, a liquid or a um, powder that glows under UV light. And so they would don their PPE, take care of the simulated patient. We had sim man with, we did one where we were in the ICU. We had to don appropriately, go into the hot zone, take care of the patient who had, I think, vomited or defecated. So we had to clean him up and all of that was potentially exposed. There was glow germ buried in the, you know, the fake emesis and the fake stool and do all of that and then doff. And then they wanted you with the UV light to see if you got any of this glow germ or fake Ebola on you. And there's somebody watching you 20 through the whole thing, telling you, yes, you're doing that correctly, or no, you're not, not doing that correctly, or you can't touch that now because you've moved from the hot zone to the cold zone. It was very educational. It was very stressful. And I, I kind of thought about that and how could we maybe make that a little bit more fun? And that's kind of how that idea came about. How has it been to balance the needs and expectations of a learner group participants who are, are at the level of an attending 
versus teaching at the Sim Center where it might be residents or medical students? Yeah, that is that is um, one of the things that makes what I do very challenging. It's a very different learner group when you are not necessarily the most experienced person in the room. And I find that it's actually, it's both simultaneously less stressful and more stressful. And I say that because if we're in the debrief and a question comes up that I don't have the answer to, either because I don't have that personal experience or because I don't practice at that site and it's a practice related question that I can't answer, I can look to others in the room who have already done that in that setting and can explain how that process went for them. I can look to the leaders who are present and can address some of those policy questions that I might not necessarily know about. Or we can talk about why that question is important, what we need to know to apply to our practice, who do I go to to get that information? And then I put that in my basket of things to follow up on and find that out and share that with the group after the fact. So it it's very um, it's very interesting and it's very enlightening sometimes because these are are very experienced participants who really have a lot to add to the debrief and a lot to add to that conversation. So much of the teaching, I don't feel like I'm really doing. I'm, I'm educating on the medical management piece of something that they may not have seen before or may not have seen very frequently. But in terms of how to manage it at their site, a lot of that education comes from discussion amongst themselves, their leaders, and their specialty groups or consulting services that would help them manage those patients. I learn a lot too when I go. You mentioned different learning groups there, but come on. Do you do this at home too and put your family through this? <laughs> no, I don't really. My kids are nine and four. And so we're not really, I think at the point where I've found simulation to be super helpful yet. Although to be honest, I probably do do it. And I don't just, I just realize, don't realize that that's what I'm doing. My son, for example, had a couple of milestones coming up recently, and we did a lot of rehearsals. So you could consider that to be simulation. But since it's 100% not medically related, it doesn't fit in my brain that way. But yes, we did a lot. We did many, many, many rehearsals to get him comfortable with this before that milestone uh, was achieved. So we do sometimes, but I think of it more as practice, I guess. But you'll be really proud on the way to dropping my kids off at school this morning. My kindergartner who needed to apologize to his teacher for telling half truths yesterday. He and I did some simulations in the car of how he would apologize. And mm -hmm. I had smiled knowing that we had this recording coming up later <laughs> in the day. <laughs> that is true. That is one, I think, good way to do it. Um, and I think about that as similar to how we interact with our standardized patients, if you will. That is one, one way that we use simulation to practice hard conversations or difficult patient interactions. And that's pretty similar to running through an apology with your child. I noticed you'd left out the spouse. Are you not running them through simulations with them knowing or not knowing? I think like training our spouses is probably a little bit different. Uh, a lot of subtle hints. Um, some things just that he just thinks differently than I do. And it's just not going to work. <laughs> He's never <laughs> going to do it the way that I want to do it. I think the biggest one for a lot of people is dishes. I load the dishwasher in a completely different way than he loads it. And so the trick, the thing that I think is funny now is when I go to actually start the dishwasher, I check it first and has he moved everything or is it the way that I left it? I would say 99% of the time he's moved it all wrong <laughs> before I start the dishwasher. <laughs> 
you are passionate in that family about how you line up things in that dishwasher. I think we just have different understanding of space and how you organize space. We we joke all the time that Tetris was a, was a clinical or a critical skill that we learned as a kid and that how to pack things in different spaces and get them to line up and maximize that space is important, which I think is true. Tetris Absolutely. is fabulous. Absolutely. But our strategies when we play Tetris, even if we play against each other, are very different. And I think it shows in real life because the way he organizes things and the way that I do are very different as well. <laughs> Alex, I'm hearing we need to have a simulation and we get these two to compete against each other. That's exactly what I heard. And I also heard it comes down to practice standardization. So that's what that's what this is about. Absolutely. Yeah. So from a from a practice standardization point, that's I think the other piece that is immediately tangible for leadership and one with one of the ways that they can invest, especially if there are multiple departments or multiple hospitals in your group and you want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. We've been focusing on that quite a bit as the Mayo Health System has expanded and how do we get these folks that are far apart in distance and have probably been doing things a little bit differently this whole time on the same page so that we're delivering the same model of care regardless of where you present when you show up to Mayo Clinic for care. And so that was part of the driver of developing this community simulation program and taking it out through the whole health system. One of the ways that we've done that recently also incorporates telemedicine as a new technology. And how do we get that technology into the current workflows? How do we help our clinicians understand the value of it and then incorporate it into their daily practice and understand the indications to use it and how to activate it and get comfortable with it as part of their regular toolkit, one of the resources that they would go to. So what we started doing is including real-time telemedicine consultations in with our simulation cases. So when we go out to say a critical access site and we have a, a critically ill patient, we also have a telemedicine physician aware that we're doing this. And so we'll have the folks at that critical care site call telemedicine for a consult and work through it together at the bedside the way they normally would. And they get a chance to understand how to activate the service, how long it takes for that to happen so that they understand why it's important to activate early because it's not an instantaneous connection. And then they understand how to interact with that consultant face-to-face real time next to a patient while they're still trying to provide care. And they see the value in what that telemedicine physician can provide for them. And it's not just yes, I can see your patient and your vital signs and you should do this next. But while you're working on that, I'm going to look at the chart and come up with other differential diagnoses. I'm going to put orders in for you. I'm going to order medications for you. I have a pharmacist right here that can help you organize and, and figure out what your drips should be and what the patient's weight is and, and come up with the right doses for this patient. Oh, and I've also called for a helicopter and I've spoken to the ICU physician and you have an accepting doctor. And it takes a huge amount of sort of administrative and cognitive load off of that team, which is often very small. It's probably a clinician and one or two nurses so that they can really focus on just taking care of the patient rather than having to deal with all that other stuff as well. And they also have the additional expertise of the telemedicine physician to help guide them through that care or walk them through a procedure they might not have done many times in order to really provide the best care for that patient. But that interaction is not when they're used to, and it's a very different feeling than if you have a consulting physician in the room with you who's hands-on with the patient. So practicing it in the simulation setting has really helped, I think, 
a lot of folks understand what the value is and how to do it and it's helped them incorporate it into their practice. In addition to all of this, you've been nationally recognized for your efforts in this realm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and and how it felt to get this incredible recognition? Yes. So I uh, was the SAEM Simulation Academy Young Educator of the Year for 2020. And that was amazing. And truthfully, that comes along with or comes from, I should say, the wonderful sponsorship and mentorship of the folks that I have at the Simulation Center that have helped me build this community emergency medicine program and guided me uh, along as it has continued to grow. This is something that I think was part of the vision for the integration of the Mayo Clinic Health System. And fortunately, I had wonderful faculty who knew that I had just come back from this simulation fellowship, knew that I had this area of expertise, knew that I had a connection to the community setting and pulled me in to leverage that and support that and help this program grow. And then they nominated me for that award. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Amazing and well-deserved. That's for sure. Thank you. As you are thinking, I mean, certainly your career is just taking off and that award will be followed by so many more, I'm confident. But to this point already, you have had your hand in a lot of different educational things. What stands out as the most rewarding or most important thus far? So that's a really good question. And I think a lot of what a lot of what I've done applies. Sometimes it's the small things. You run one case and you find one little, like I say, latent safety threat, one little thing that's out of place or one little piece of equipment that wasn't there. And you realize that's huge, actually, if that doesn't get fixed. And so just addressing that feels really good. I'd say the two that come to mind, when we first started incorporating telemedicine into our simulations, I brought neonatology in on that because we were running some obstetric emergencies cases at some of our critical access sites. And by asking them to participate, which they did graciously and fabulously, I realized that we didn't have an established relationship with teleneonatology at every single one of our health system sites. It was only the sites that had a birth center on site. So even some of the critical access hospitals are big enough that they had an on-site OB and an on-site delivery center, but some don't. And you'll have deliveries at those places too, because somebody just walks in or has a baby in the parking lot or couldn't get to the other center or whatever the case may be. And I thought, well, those are the folks that probably need it more because they don't have skilled OB nurses with NRP training on site all the time. So how do we set that up? And And through that relationship, working with them by just inviting them to participate in our simulations, that program grew and now is applicable and does have a relationship with every single one of our health system site emergency departments. And it's been activated a couple of times so far by sites that wouldn't have thought of it or have known that it existed before, which I think is huge. I'm curious, is there a way we could use simulation to decrease the anxiety that children might experience coming into the ER to get routine care by having a day where the community can come and simulate getting care with their kids in a low stress experience or something, would that be helpful? And then also if we, if a place wants to have like a trauma outreach for high schoolers or maybe at risk adolescents where we could simulate things going wrong for, you know, drunk driving and stuff like that. And, 
but I, I don't know the how hard those things are. But I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a way to do simulations where the intended learner is the patients and community. So I think there are definitely ways to do that through a community outreach type structure. And I think much of that would need to be offsite. While it would be great, I think, to bring patients into the clinical environment, you can't do that without potentially exposing them to or potentially exposing patients that are already there to the community that's visiting. And so that becomes a privacy issue and a safety issue, potentially, depending on what's going on. Absolutely. However, there are, from a drunk driving perspective and and teenagers, there's a lot of already well-established programs that do address that at that level. I did some of that when I was in medical school. We went out to um, a high school and we had worked with local fire department and local police and local EMS. And we staged a drunk driving accident on their track and field. Wait, so you're telling me you did simulations in high school even? I did. I didn't know I was doing it at the time, but I sure did. High school and on the education side, uh, medical school. But we had these programs. Out of calling. This is a career calling for you. (laughs) It must have been. I just didn't realize it. But yeah, they, they stage a drunk driving accident. They take a couple of cars that are crunched up that will eventually just be discarded and place them strategically. They have... Um, a couple of the senior high school students themselves that played the victims and we put them in a prom dress and a tux that was kind of ripped up and we painted their faces and painted moulage injuries on them and laid them across the hood of the car. And it was interesting. It's, and it's, it was, it's, I think a really good experience for the high school students too. They show up to this accident scene. We play a mock 911 call, which actually, if I remember correctly, was my voice. And they watch as the fire department and the um, EMS folks uh, respond to the scene. So they watch as the one victim is extricated from the vehicle and the jaws of life were used to cut the car open. They watch her get loaded into the ambulance and driven away. I think one is pronounced on the scene. And then the drunk driver is given a field sobriety test by police arrested and taken away. And then we talk about what is the impact of this on your life and your career and You could be any one of these three people. You could be arrested, you could be killed, or you could be severely injured. And this is a really big deal. And how do we, how do we address this? And it's always done, or at least when we did it was a couple months before prom so that they had a lot of time to think about it before they got to that point. And the kids always had they really good reactions to it. And so there are absolutely ways that you can use simulation in a community outreach perspective, but I think it's, it's probably more feasible and you'll reach more people if you do it offsite than if you do it inside too. That makes total sense. And, you know, for the audience, um, we're recording this in at the end of the academic year. And so I'm thinking about many residents that are, you know, either transitioning up a year or getting ready to leave residency. And then the med- medical students were preparing for residency. And as you think about this group that are all transitioning, who do you think should be thinking about doing a simulation fellowship? What are the qualities of the person that should be looking to follow your lead? I think one, you have to have a passion for education because you cannot do a simulation session without including some degree of education. I think you also have to have a, a willingness to be or an ability to be flexible because there's always something that comes up that you weren't planning for. There's always got to be a backup plan and a backup plan for the backup plan, which I think is part of why emergency medicine in particular is well-suited for this. Although you don't have to be coming from an emergency medicine training program. We're just used to having backup plans and backup backup plans. And then I think you have to be 
somewhat creative. You have to think about, you know, if I don't have this available to me or I don't have the high fidelity mannequin, how I'm, how am I going to get this point that I want to teach cross with the equipment that I do have? Or do I need to adjust my learning outcomes for this particular case based on the equipment that I do have? And how can I address these particular specific learning outcomes that this, this department or this group wants included with the equipment that I do have and the faculty that I do have? So that you just, you got to kind of be able to go with the flow and start from scratch and build something, whether that's curriculum or uh, a task trainer or the whole simulation program. So as long as you have that sort of drive to create and that flexibility, I think it'll fit you well. When I've heard you speak about developing your program, you've been incredibly innovative. I think about a classic simulation model, you know, there's some body of information that you want to communicate through simulation to a learner. And you've taken it to another level. You've talked about the neonatology and telemedicine. You're actually starting to define these roles in the practice as part of the simulation. That's totally new. As an innovator in the field, where do you see simulation in the community going in the next 10 years? I hope that simulation will become a more regular piece of the community practice as as we move forward. Our program in particular, I'm working every day to build our faculty so that we can be doing these more frequently and farther out. So ideally every community setting or every community department should have some simulation champion, somebody who knows how to run a case, who knows how to debrief a case. So even if you don't have all the equipment and you don't have the curriculum, somebody like me, who's the director of the program, who has all of those resources, can provide those to you and you can run those cases when they fit at your site and you're not dependent on waiting for my schedule. And so we're working on building our own network so that we get to that point where we can do this more frequently. But I also think that it's an important piece to do regularly just so that we are primed and ready when those sick patients walk in. Um, Teams work well together, but they work differently. I think in the community, they're smaller. They have to be more flexible with each role. You don't necessarily have one nurse for medications and one nurse for recording and one nurse for procedures and one nurse for this. You have one nurse (laughs) and you. And so you have to be flexible and, and learning how to operate efficiently in a team like that when the stakes are high is very different than learning how to perform with a large team in a, in a academic center where you have everything at your fingertips. And so being able to practice that skill through simulation regularly is going to make the care that we're able to, de- to provide at the community setting so much better. And I think being able to practice that regularly is, is important. So if for no other reason than to keep up our skills from a teamwork perspective, I think it's an important piece to have regularly in our in our community settings. And I hope that that value is seen globally and applied and that communities everywhere start adapting simulation regularly. Other pieces of it will grow, I think, as the value of it is, is established in terms of identifying latent safety threats, practice improvement, practice standardization and education. All of that will come with it as these programs grow. But I think to get them in and to get them established, the biggest piece is going to be team training and and keeping up those skills. This has been amazing. I smile inside because I reflect on the fact that, you know, I was there when you started your residency and 
watching that journey when we did some really low quality now in retrospect simulation work with the blue phantoms in our ultrasound and then watching you now and how impressive and innovative your mind sees education is inspiring and thank you for just giving us a peek for the last hour i know that alex and i are grateful and our audience will be really grateful do you have any final words you want to leave the audience with or any other topics you want to cover Thank you very much for having me. I think it, it's really been a pleasure. This is something that I think I could talk about forever. <laughs> um, the only other piece that I'll add to that is that there are, simulation is fabulous and simulation is always my preferred method, but it is not the answer to everything. It's not always the most feasible way to go about something. So I wouldn't say that simulation is the end-all be-all of education and, and practice standardization, but it is a tool that is very flexible and it is a tool that is very broad and can be extremely effective. So it's worth looking into. And if you don't already have a simulation expert where you are, look to see who is nearby that has some degree of that expertise or that experience and, and leverage that to the best of your ability. Apply that where you can. Talk to them about whether simulation is something that would be well suited for the uh, goals that you have in mind or the educational pieces that you want to deliver and just see where, where this will take you. Because I think it opens up a lot of opportunities and it adds a lot of practical pieces to education that other modalities lack. So if it's feasible and if it's applicable, I think it's very worth the investment. Uh, and I would encourage folks to get involved. Well, that's amazing. Folks, that was the voice of Dr. Shane, world expert in simulation. And um, Alex and I appreciate your time and listening to us. Thank you so very much, everybody. Thank you. The Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Balamkanda.